Oh, you can hear me now? I can hear me now. It's good to see you here. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1 uh, this morning. If you turn with me in your Bibles, Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you feel free to grab one out of the pew rack in front of you. Uh, we'd love for you to follow along. That is the same translation I am using uh, today and that I use uh, every Sunday. Um, if you don't have a Bible at home, you can feel free to take one of those also as a, as a gift to you. And uh, we'll just put another one in there for the next person. So we'd love for you to have the Word of God with you. Well, we are uh, in a series right now, uh, a Christmas series called Zechariah's Song, uh, based on Luke 1, where Zechariah prophesies and, and, and speaks from the abundance of praise and worship and overflow of praise and worship from his heart. He, he speaks and he sings and he, he says, here's what God is to me and what God's doing and what God uh, is going to do. And it's, it's just an amazing song that he sings. So we're going to look at that in depth over the next few weeks. Uh, we started a couple weeks ago, really, uh, talking about how God broke the silence between the Old Testament book of Malachi and the New Testament uh, with, the, with the gospel accounts, especially now Luke, one of the earlier ones. Um, and we, there was just 400 years of what they would call silence. And, and we talked about this, uh, that, that God was silent through his prophets. So there were no new prophets coming out and saying, this is what you should do. This is how you should live. Uh, there was no scripture being inspired and written down during that time. But there, God wasn't totally silent, was he? God was still active. People had, the believers there had, the Old Testament. They had the scriptures to look at and to, to learn from and to glean from and to study. They had those promises of God that were near and dear to their heart, the ones that they embraced and held on to. Uh, of course, as they have that in their near and dear to their heart, they also have an overflow of abundance of truth and grace within them. So, so like we are, we're friends and we're family and we can encourage one another. Sometimes God may give, may give me a word through your encouragement. Right, so God is speaking through our faithfulness and obedience to one another, and certainly God's Holy Spirit was never gone. God was still guiding and directing by the power of his Holy Spirit. So although there was a time of silence for, as far as prophets and scripture being written, God was still very, very much speaking uh, his truth that he's always spoke since the beginning of time. And, and people were really holding on to promises of God. So we talked about the breaking of that silence. What was neat about that is Zechariah was a priest who was, who was faithful to his, to his, uh, his God and faithful to his family, uh, but, but he and his wife could not have children. His wife was barren, and then they were getting up in age, right? So we see that this, this angel of the Lord, Gabriel, breaks the silence of God when he comes to Zechariah and says, listen, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son, and you're going to name him John. Now, going back, Zechariah's name, Zechariah, right? It means Yahweh remembers, right? Or God remembers. The Lord remembers. So there, there's sometimes in that time of silence, or what seems like silence, we might think, has God forgotten us? Has God forgotten us? And of course, so appropriately so, when he breaks the silence to this man whose name means God remembers, he also says, not only are we going to talk to God remembers, but God remembers is going to have a son, and you're going to call him John, which means God is gracious. And that God was about to pour out his grace on his people because of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So John would be a forerunner. We learned from, uh, from Malachi, and we learned from uh, other scriptures in, uh, in the Old Testament prophecy, that he would be a forerunner, a, one to prepare the way for the Messiah. So Zechariah knows, like, okay, this isn't the Messiah that I'm going to have. We're going to have John, but, but I'm still so excited because I'm going to have John, and that means the Messiah is on the way. That means the Messiah is coming. And then there's this period of time, if you look at the Christmas story, if you look at it with your family, where Mary hears from the angel, right? And so does Joseph, and Mary has a song, and, and she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who is Zechariah's wife, right? Who's, she's pregnant, right? And, and they're, they're both pregnant, and they get to talking about this, and now it's like, wow, not only do we have, do we have John, now we, have the, we know there's the Messiah is in her. And what a wonderful 
time this is, a, a time we've been waiting for hundreds of years for God to fulfill this promise, to this promise to come to fruition. So Zechariah is, is excited about lots of things. All, all that God, God has said and done, he, he remembers that and he overflows with joy about that. So there was a silence that was broken. And now the Messiah was going to be present. And then last week we talked about this outflow of, of praise that came from Zechariah. From the depth of his heart, it was praise. Remember, praise from the heart. And Zechariah was so full of praise, even, even though he was muted, right? He had kind of had some unbelief. God, are you sure you can give me a son? I mean, do you know the circumstances? And the angel's like, ah, we're going to mute you for a while. Let's, let's teach you a lesson here, humble you a little bit. Until, until he's born, you're going to be muted. But then we saw even before he was born, remember last week, or even before he could speak, John was born, and, and they were saying, well, what, what are we going to name him? We're going to name him Zechariah or someone in your family tree? And Elizabeth, who can speak, says, no, his name's John. Oh, are you sure? Are you sure there's no one in your family named John? And so they asked Zechariah, and they gave him a tablet, right? And, and they, he wrote down, his name is John. And that, that, to me, was one of those first outpourings of praise, saying, I am going to be faithful to what God has called me to do. His name is John. His name is God, is gracious, and it's going to come to fruition. You don't understand the Messiah. Don't, I mean, you should understand. We've been talking about this for over nine months. Right? This, is, this is an amazing thing. The Messiah is on the way. So before he can even speak, he praises on a tablet. His name is John. His name is John. This is what his name is going to be. And then as soon as that happens, he can speak, and then he begins to praise. Right? He begins to praise God. There's this overflow because of what God done. See, it's what God has done. When the redemption happens, when Jesus, Jesus is at the forefront of our minds and thoughts and what he's going to accomplish in, in Zechariah's mind, what he's going to accomplish in our mind, what he has accomplished is there, we ought to sing a song. Amen? It ought to be a song that's, that's loud. And I, I asked this question, and I posed this question to us last week. What song are you singing? Now, I know we have all kinds of different circumstances in our lives. Some are good, some are bad, some are inconvenient, some are worse. But overarching all of that, right, everything pales in comparison to knowing that Christ has come to redeem us and save us from ourselves. Amen? And that song, especially now at Christmas, especially now, should be, must be sung. You know, I, I told you just last week and the week before, and maybe the week before that, I love Christmas. I love decorations. I love, I love it because it just points out the fact that unto us a child has been born. A son has been given, right? He is Christ the Lord. That, that's the message, and we get to embrace that. And, and during this season, you and I, who embrace that all year long, we embrace it during this season and, and sing that song even more loudly because there are people listening. There are people decorating also. And there are people putting up signs like this that they don't even really understand what it means. But, but Christ has come. We ought to sing that song. We ought to sing that song loud all year long. I, I joked this morning at you know, our business meeting I should motion to uh, keep the Christmas decorations up all year long. I know I'll get a couple of eyes in that, but maybe it won't go through. But yeah, you know, that's, that's how I feel. We, this is, I want to show you an example of this, okay? Davey did a wonderful job on our computer stuff. We had songs today, right? And, and, and you're like, man, we had so many good Christmas songs. You know why they were Christmas songs? Because she put a Christmas background on them, right? The camels or the star, the nativity. Every song, every worship song we sing is a Christmas song. It's all about Jesus. But, when we, it, but you see what I'm saying? Like all of those songs, are, they're just worship songs. A couple were like traditional Christmas songs. But the rest of them were just worship and praise songs because of Jesus. And Christmas is because of Jesus. So it's Christmas all year round. This week, we're going to continue pressing on through this song. We got through verse 71 uh, in Luke 1 last week, and we're going to keep press, pressing on through 75 today. 
And, and today I want us to, to focus, so last week we focused on a praise from the heart, and this week we're going to focus on the promise. What is this promise that they're holding on to? What is this promise that they're so excited about? And, and then what does this promise do for us? And, and here's the question I want to ask this week. Last week was, what song are you singing? Because if it's a song that's, that's a sad song, if it's a song that's a grumpy song, if it's a song that's a, a depressed song, and it's not the song of Jesus saying, listen, whatever's going on, Jesus is here. That's the song we ought to be singing, right? So we had a question that. What song am I singing? This week, I want us to ask this question. Am I living by fear and guilt, or am I living by faith in his righteousness? Am I living by fear and guilt, or am I living by faith in Christ's righteousness? And we're going to look at that today. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get right into work, uh, starting there in verse 67. Father, we are so grateful to be here today. We're so grateful that you've, you've brought us together as the body of Christ, the family of God, that you've knit us together in unity because of Jesus. God, thank you for making us a family. As we come today, we, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to continue to worship you and, and, and God, to learn from you and to glean from you, that we would be changed and challenged by you, God, that you would convict us of sin and that you would point us to and move us into a place of obedience and repentance that you would restore us if we need restoring. We ask that your spirit would, would move in our midst, lead us and guide us, conform us into the image and pattern of the Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so today we're looking at the promise. Let's look at verses 60. Uh, we'll start at 67. We're kind of going back a little bit to start at the beginning of his song, and we'll go through 75. It says, then Zechariah, or his father, Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, he was filled and he prophesied. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant the oath he swore to our father Abraham. He has given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies, to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. We're going to break that down today. And, and the first thing we're going to look at is this. Uh, according to the promise, we're talking about the promise. The promise, number one, reveals God's mercy. The promise reveals God's mercy. And this is, you got to think about this from a standpoint of Zechariah embracing, believing, trusting, knowing the promise. And then the promise being unfolding in front of his eyes. But this whole promise, it's revealing God's mercy right before his eyes. You look at verse 72 with me here on this passage. He has dealt mercifully. We're talking about, talking about God. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Now we're going to look at that oath. If you want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. First book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. It's the beginning of that oath, and it's ratified in 15, it's said again in 17, and in a lot of different places. There's over 28 places in Scripture where this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, is mentioned and stated about this oath, this covenant that God made towards his people. And I want to make sure you understand what a covenant is, right? A covenant is not an agreement, a deal. It's not, God did not say, hey, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. God said, I'm going to scratch your back whenever it itches because I'm God and I can do that. It doesn't matter what you do or where you are or what's going on. I'm going to scratch your back. But it was bigger than scratching our back, wasn't it? 
I'm going to, to send you a rescuer. I'm going to send you a redeemer. I'm going to promise to save you. Whether you want it or not, I'm going to send you a Messiah. And God has made a covenant, a promise about that. And, and what Zechariah is doing, he's interpreting this promise that we're going to look at. And he's saying, here's what this means, that, that God has dealt mercifully with our fathers. There's mercy to be had, that this actual promise, this covenant, and now the fruition of it is God's mercy. Now let's look at uh, the text in Genesis 12. We're looking at verses 1 through 3. I've got to turn there. I talk a lot and I don't turn the page. <clears throat> what book is this? Genesis 12. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. You ready? The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, we're not going to look at all of these instances where this is stated, but this blessing that Abraham would become is this, that the blessing would come from Abraham out of his line. And, of course, out of, last week we talked about the Davidic covenant. Out of the line and seed of David would come who? Jesus Christ. Now, there's a promise is twofold here. Abram is a father of a nation. That's his name, his meaning. And then he changes it, God changes it eventually to Abraham, which is the father of a multitude of people or nations. So it, it, the first promise has to do with Israel, that God has a sweet spot for Israel. Okay, that's, that's a, it's a national promise. It's a national covenant. That, and, and it hasn't been realized fully even today, that one day God will rule and reign the nation of Israel, the borders he has given them, it will be theirs, and that will be finished. And it'll be when the Lord Jesus returns. Okay? That will be fulfilled. The other part of this is going beyond that, that Abraham will not only be a blessing in his heritage in, in this land, the nation, it'll be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Well, how will it be a blessing to all the nations of the world? Well, Jesus will come out of it. Jesus will come out of this nation, this, this family, this household of Abraham, and, be, and the Redeemer will come and be a blessing to everybody. Right? Anyone who would believe. That's, that's what we're talking about, this, this promise. So, and here's the deal. We're talking about God's mercy. If his promise is revealing God's mercy, and certainly Zechariah is thinking so, he's dealt mercifully with our fathers, what does that mean? Well, mercy revealed can only mean one thing. We're in trouble. We're in trouble. Let me define mercy for you. Well, first let me define grace. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. It's like, I got something I didn't deserve. I didn't earn it. I, I just got something. It's a gift. It's like Christmas coming up. A lot of us are going to get a lot of grace. A lot of gifts, right? Probably. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Not getting what you do deserve. You see, Zechariah had a long time, thousands of years since the Abrahamic covenant, to, to look and to ponder and to see the depth of the human heart. The depravity of not only the nation of Israel and the descendants of Abraham, but his own heart, his own condition, and the condition of the world. He had a lot of time to see that. There's a lot of history between the Abrahamic covenant and Zechariah. And what you see is this continual perpetual denial of God, pushing away of God, elevating oneself, that I am God, I want what I want. It's a continual selfish, self-centered life that we live, full of pride, full of ego, and, and really light on the God side of things. We may have a semblance of God or a semblance of even obedience, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It's not a true relationship. And Israel was famous 
for crying out, God, God, you're our God, we need your help, we need your help. And then he would help and send a protector or he'd set up a judge and, and to deliver them. And then they would fall back into their normal routine of, it's all about me, it's all about what we want, our passions, our desires, our evil, our sin. And they would fall into this pattern. Then they would be like captured and put into exile and, and God was trying to deal with their hearts. And then eventually, eventually they would repent and eventually they would come back to God and say, God, God, help us, help us, help us. And the cycle went over and over and over. And it's a cycle I even see sometimes today in my own heart. We continue to do that. Why do we need mercy? Because we continue to do that. The Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all erred, made mistakes. None of us are perfect. None of us are right. None of us are truly good, Scripture says, that, that none of us are. And the wages of that sin, we've all sinned and fallen short, and the wages of that sin is death. You know, when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, there's this perfect paradise, this perfect relationship that they had with God, the Creator, they got to walk with God and be in his presence, and, and they were immortal. They were, they were perfect. And then they chose to disobey. And Scripture says that when they sinned, when sin entered the world, death entered the world. And they were no longer immortal. They would, their bodies would give up and they would die. And, and listen, that has followed each and every one of us also, right? We are all, our bodies are all going to give up and die. That's what happens now. But there's more to it than just our physical death, right? There's a spiritual side of this too. There's a spiritual, eternal separation because of sin. Because my body might die, but me, Brandon, I'm, I'm talking to you. This is me, my soul, who's talking to you. I'm using this body that will one day die. But my soul is still eternal. But the wages of sin is death and separation from God. Because of my impurity, because of my heart, because of the status and condition right here inside, I will be eternally separated from God forever. Why? Because he's pure and I'm not. Because he's perfect and I'm not. Because he's holy and I'm not. And, and I don't deserve that. I, what I deserve is death and separation from God. That's the penalty. And, and we think like, well, you know, like I'm a parent. There are times I just don't go all out and discipline my child like to the extreme. I'm like, you know what? Let's forget that one. Let's just erase it. We're, no big deal. Let's forget about it. Put it in the past, right? We do that with each other too, don't we, sometimes? Like we, we make a, make a sin, we sin against someone. We maybe get too loud or maybe gossip or we slander someone. We say, you know what? I'm sorry. Let's, let's just forget about that one. Let's push it behind. See, God isn't a pushover. He can't just push aside sin. He's holy and perfect and just. And if we want a God that is holy and perfect and just, he must punish sin. So the, the most wonderful thing happened. He made a promise. And Zechariah embraced this promise, this promise of God's mercy. It revealed God's mercy. That we would not get what we deserve. Let's, let's turn our Bibles to the book of Acts together. Acts chapter 3, I want to show you this. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Luke should be where your, your finger is still or your ribbon, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 24 through 26. This is, this is the Apostle Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit, preaching uh, to, to Jewish people, to people who would think they would understand this promise and know this promise and, and love the mercy found in the promise. So Acts chapter 2, verses, or 3, verses uh, 24 through 26. In addition, he says, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and, and those after him have also foretold these days about the Messiah. You are all sons of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your ancestor 
Abraham. This is, he's saying, listen, you guys, you are all a part of this. You're this national heritage. This is, this is, you're Jewish. You're of Israel. This is your promise. Don't, don't you get it? Your pro- this is your promise. Don't you get it? He says, uh, going on, he says, saying, saying to Abraham, God said to Abraham, uh, all of these families on the earth will be blessed through your offspring. There's a blessing to be had. We talked about that. Okay, and here's, here's what is that offspring? So if we were to ask the question, if the promise reveals God's mercy, then the question is, what is God's mercy? Verse 26. God raised up his servant, or Jesus, and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. Where is this mercy found? This mercy is found in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. So Zechariah is singing, Peter is thinking backwards to what just happened a little while ago. Zechariah is thinking, man, this is going to happen soon. The Messiah is on the way. I don't know what it looks like, but I can't wait. But it's all about the mercy of God, God giving mercy, not giving us what we deserve. See, here's the deal. Sin, let's, you, you and I deserve that for our sin. But God, who had to have justice, decided that he would come down in the flesh and tabernacle or dwell among us, and that he would go there instead. So that then God's judgment and his wrath would be poured out on Christ. It was pleased, Isaiah says, for God to crush Jesus, that we might be healed by his wounds. Amen? See, that's, that's the mercy I don't deserve that. I deserve that. I don't deserve the grace. My Lord didn't deserve that. But he took on my punishment and gave me what I didn't deserve. The opportunity to be forgiven. To be free. It's something I could never accomplish on my own. So this covenant started, and this covenant actually started way back in Genesis. We see the fall of mankind in Genesis Two and three, and then we see three where, where Gen- in Genesis we see uh, the serpent right tempted Eve, and and then at the end of this God says, "Man, I'm I'm going to cur- curse as a serpent. You're going to slither around on the ground." But He says, "Out of the seed of this woman will rise one who will what crush the serpent. Although he'll bruise his heel, he will crush his head." That this is this is the original promise of the Messiah, the original promise that God was going to deal with sin and Satan and death once and for all. And it kept, it kept going. That was like the, the headwaters of this mighty flowing grace, this mercy down towards us. And then, it, then another tributary came in with, with Abraham and then with David. And it continued on into the new covenant, flowing out, pouring out for us in Christ's blood. And that's the mercy. I don't deserve that. That's why it's grace. It's a gift. But I deserve far, far worse. And he is not going to give me what I deserve because I can have faith and trust in what he accomplished on the cross for me and for you. And so Zechariah's song is that, and how freeing that is to, to worship in that way. Number two, the, the promise changes our heart. It changes our heart. I want you to look at the end of this, end of this text again in, in um, Acts. He says, God raised up his servant, right, Jesus, and there's more, more to come in the New Testament about that. You can look all over that. God raised him up and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from what? Your evil ways. To turn you from your evil ways. That there was, there was sin. There was a problem here. We want to turn you from this. God didn't come down and say, listen, I've got a list for you right here. If you would just follow this, check them all off, initial when you've done them, and sign at the bottom every day, we'll, we'll be good. 
That's not what Jesus came to do. The servant Jesus came to have us have a change of heart. He wanted our hearts to turn from ourselves and from our pride and from our selfishness. He wanted our hearts to turn from fear and doubt and turn to Him and be changed by Him. That's what He wanted to do. Let's go back to our passage in Luke. Hopefully your ribbon was there, your finger. Keep it there. Let's, let's look at this. <clears throat> Chapter 1, we're going to look at verses, uh, the end of, end of 73. So he gave this oath to swear to our father Abraham. And then he says, he's given us this privilege. This is verse 73b. He has given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies, to serve him without fear. He's given us this privilege, since he's rescued us from the hand of our enemies, to serve him without fear. Fear is a, a debilitating thing, isn't it? Fear is something that will paralyze us and, and, and keep us so isolated and, and wondering. And, and I, want, I want you to understand what Zechariah feels here. This freedom to worship, the freedom to obey, the freedom to have a relationship with God comes because he dispels the fear through the blood. He, all religions, besides Christianity, besides Judeo-Christian belief from Scripture, all religions and non-religions alike, have the basic same philosophy. I'm going to try to be a good person and do the best I can. Or I'm going to try to earn my way to achieve my goal. Now, so some, of the, some of those religions aren't good things to do to earn that goal. They're bad things. But I'm going to try to earn work, whatever I can, to earn my reward. For you and I, if we, if we decide to be a religion that looks kind of a, like a semblance of Christianity... It's really easy, and as Peter talked to these Jews, and as Christ continued to talk to the Jewish people and these Pharisees that were holding on to law and restriction and, and, and legalism, here's what happens. If, if, I, if I embrace a religion like that, and that's my religion, I will continually, day in and day out, as I lay my head on my pillow, ask the question, did I do enough today? I hope I did enough today. And we live, we will live in, in that situation in perpetual fear. Not knowing if we've ever done enough to actually earn or achieve favor from God. And what, what we're talking about here is the alleviation of that fear and guilt because it's not up to you or me. God comes down not to straighten us out, but to renovate our heart. That we'd have a new heart. And from that new heart would then flow fruit that's produced by his Holy Spirit. That we would look more like Jesus because he's renovating us and he's changing us and he's inside of us and he's living from the inside out. So we, we can look on the outside like there's fruit, but it's just those fruit baskets that you put out sometimes that are plastic fake ones or wax. You look from a distance, oh, there's an apple. You get closer, like, I'm not sure. And you get right up, oh no, that's, that's fake. We do that too. We, we gussy up, right? We, we look the part. We think we can fake it, and we can sometimes. We can fake it until someone maybe gets really close and says, oh, well, I don't know about that. But, but when, when Jesus changes our heart, he produces a fruit that cannot be denied. It's a fruit from him. Not from us, it's from him. He does it. We just abide in him. We just rely on him. We just say, God, I, whatever you want, I'm going to follow you. And he'll begin to do that work in us. I want to show a couple of passages about this change of heart and what, what the requirement is. And I want to show you some of the, the ways that religion, 
right? Religion, overall religion. I, I, people say, oh, you're religious. No, I'm not religious. I, I have a relationship with Christ, right? I, I don't want to be religious. The whole world is religious in some way. I want to be a follower of Christ. I want to abandon my religion, and, and I want to embrace Jesus. Turn with me to John. Keep your finger here. Turn with me, with me to John. The next book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. <clears throat> Chapter 4. There's an encounter with Jesus and the woman at the well, and, and they had a, a short exchange, and, and he kind of exposed her for who she was and what her past was like. And, uh, and then uh, we're going to pick up the story in verse 19 of, chap- of chapter 4. <clears throat> it says this. So he just said, you, you know, you've had lots of husbands, and the guy you're with now is not even your husband. <clears throat> she says, sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. Now stop there for a minute. Here's the idea there. There's a religion that Samaritans are embracing something. They're hearing some bits and pieces about Judaism. They hear about Abraham. They hear about the Messiah. But they're, they're worshiping what they don't know. They're just, oh, let's just worship. Let's check it off the list and let's worship. And, and Jesus says, that, that's not what we're doing. And he says, you know, the Jews, by the way, ha- have the answer because salvation is from the Jews. And what does he mean by that? Well, just what we said about the promise, right? Who came from the Jews? Who came from Israel? Who came from Father Abraham to bless many nations? Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Right, who's talking to her right now. Salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is a Jew. But an hour is coming, verse 23, uh, an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in what? Spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. This is a change of heart. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. This is, get this, standard. Listen, I, thanks for your time, buddy. But this, the Messiah is going to come. And when he comes, he'll give us the list. He'll give us the things to check off. Well, I'll make sure we get it all squared away. I may not quite know it now, but he'll come and we'll, we'll get it squared away. No, that's not what Jesus is wanting. He wants spirit and truth. And so he says, Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. The Messiah the one that will explain everything to us and set us on the right path, came to say the worship that you and I have of him must come from the heart. It must be about the spirit and truth. It must come from a spirit of truth within inside of us. It's not an external thing. That's, it doesn't start externally. It starts internally and then moves its way out. So the promise really does change our heart. Now, if we go to the book of Galatians with me real quick. So after the Gospels, you have Acts and Romans, First and Second Corinthians, and then you have the book of Galatians, the first little epistle, little, little letter from Paul. We're in chapter 3. <clears throat> chapter 3, and we're going to be beginning in verse 5 and read through 9 together. Galatians, right? Galatians 3. Five through nine. So, so uh, Paul says this. He says, so does God, and there's this whole, we did a whole series on this, right? There, there's a whole battle between the works and law and legalism and battle of grace, right? We're saved what? By grace through faith 
in Christ alone. Remember that series? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So Paul was continuing to argue that. He says in verse 5, So then does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by doing the works of the law? Or, he says, is it by believing what you heard? Just like Abraham, who believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. You know then that those who have, who have faith, these are, these are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaimed the gospel ahead of time to Abraham. So he's making this argument for the salvation of these Gentiles. The Jews think, oh, it's only, it's only ours. It's our promise, our nation. But that was Abram. Now it's Abraham. And the promise is all across the world to everybody. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every knee will bow. So he's making this argument. He says, and you, you should know this. You're of the seed of Abraham. You want to argue Abraham. You want to argue the law. You want to argue the prophets. Let me argue. He says, uh, isn't it believing? Isn't it from the heart believing what you heard? Not being a good Jew? Just like Abraham who believed God, it was credited him as righteousness. Then you know that those who have faith, Jew or Gentile, are, these are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaimed the gospel ahead of time to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. Not just one, all the nations. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had what? Faith. And faith comes from the heart. You see, this, this promise of Abraham, this deep, awesome promise of Abraham, this covenant he made, that God made to Abraham, is one that changes our heart. It, we see God's mercy revealed and then we see a God who comes and says, I want to just change your heart. I want to wreck you and turn you inside out. And I want, you to re I want to renovate you. And, and then I want to produce a fruit in you. But I want to do that. Stop relying on yourself. Stop feeling the fear of that. So he's given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies, to serve him without fear. In order to do that, we have to make this shift in our mind. Like, I don't want to serve him out of fear. I, 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 I reverence the Lord. He is, he is God. He is sovereign. I am not. I, I respect that. I, I, I know that. I, and I have a healthy fear of Him. I know the justice and judgment He can pour out and the one that He did for me in the Savior, Jesus Christ. But now I want to live a life not in fear. I want to live a life of freedom. And I've got to make a shift in my mind from self-righteousness, uh, like a self-righteous works-based faith to a self-denying faith that relies on his righteousness and not my own. And this goes back to the beginning of time. Cain and Abel. We had, we had two examples of, of faith or, or righteousness seeking. And, and we know that Cain eventually murdered his brother Abel, right? So you have Cain and Abel who bring their sacrifices to the Lord. Abel brings his sacrifice from his heart and lays his best out before him and says, this is yours, God, this is yours, and, and I, I am trusting, I believe that you are sovereign, that you are God, that you are the Redeemer. It's not based on anything I did here or laid on here, but I just give you my heart, and this shows my heart is all yours. It's like, thanks, I, I accept that. I accept that faith, and I'll credit that to you as righteousness. And then Cain brings his up to the offering. It's like, oh, here you go. Here you go. I put my offering down. I'm, you know, Put, punching the clock, making sure it's all done. I'm just putting in the hour and making sure that you know I, 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 I want to make sure it's recorded. Make sure you initial here. He's just, he just putting, in the, putting in the work. It wasn't even really good work. But what he was hoping is that his work would produce for him a righteousness. 
and he'd be okay with God. And he was not. God said, I don't accept that. You've got to get a heart change. You've got to do something right here. Something, something has to change. And he didn't want anything to do with that. And he got angry and jealous, and he murdered his brother. See, works righteousness does that. It creates anxiety and fear and doubt and shame and guilt. And that's not what God wants us to have. That's placed on Christ. But here's the problem. The problem for us, especially in America today, is we are often just too good. We're just too good. We're too good for our own good. We're pretty nice people. I look out in the audience, I see you're wonderful people. I love you. I love being around you. I love the addition that you are to my life. And we're good people. And we can probably, like in the community even, there's some merit and weight just to us being good people. And there are good people in our community we know. And sometimes we're just too good for our own good because it's not convenient for me to abandon how good I am for God to really have a heart change. I'm like, I, I, I don't need a heart change. I'm, I'm good. My neighbor's a good person. How could, how could God not accept him? We all need a heart change. Jesus Christ did not come to earth checking in and saying, oh, oh yeah, your, your heart's pure. You're good. Oh, no, yeah, your heart's pure. You're good. Don't worry about it. He came because we were all wrecks. We were all messed up and that he had to redeem all of us. He said, you're all a mess and I'm the only solution for you. I will give you what you need most. And that's a new heart and a new spirit. He wants to reach in and take that, that one out and change it and put a new heart of flesh inside of us that it would beat for him. That's what he wants to do. None of us are good. But sometimes we think we are, and, and that, that's, that's our downfall because it's never convenient. It's like, oh, I, I don't need Jesus. I'm doing good. Things are good. Jesus can kind of be at bay right over here, but when I need him, it'll be convenient. I'll, I'll, here's a couple of illustrations for you of things that maybe not, aren't or who, that are inconvenient. Um, we were on the way down to the Christmas concert in Reading, the Caleb Christmas concert. We were so excited. My mom is here. We're going down as a family and taking her with, and we're on the way down there, and it was really inconvenient for my daughter to get sick on the fr on, in the truck on the freeway. I'm like, couldn't you have done that at a more convenient time, like in the bathroom at home? It would work better, right? And, and of course, we, we, that's water in the bridge. No big deal. Let's move forward. Well, we turned around and came back home and took care of her. And last night, it was really inconvenient for my smoke detectors to go off at four in the morning. I mean, I haven't heard that sound for a long, long time, lots of years. I swear the devil was trying to have a field day, like starting then. These things are going off, and you're like, where am I? What is going on? And, and it was really inconvenient. You know why? Because there wasn't a fire. I mean, I, I am all for smoke alarms if there's a fire, right? It wasn't convenient. And it kind of irks me when it's not convenient. It's like, I want to push it away. Gifts. We're going to be receiving a lot of probably gifts from people or thank yous or oh, I love you and appreciations. And we've got to really smile because sometimes even the gifts that we get aren't really convenient. Like the ugly Christmas sweater. When I, and even today, I like I, mean, I would sport it today, the ugly Christmas sweater. But when I was 10, I'm like, I don't, I'm not going to wear the ugly Christmas sweater from Aunt So-and-so. Like it's not convenient for me. Or today, here, this is just a hint. I love you all, but is like fruitcake ever convenient <laughs> for anybody? Anybody at all? Matt, you okay? Okay. All right. The fruitcake people. No, sorry. I'm not going to go there. Uh, well, then if I get one, I, I will send it your way. Wow. Regift it. Yeah. It seems like it was already regifted when it was sent first time. Like, isn't it the same one that gets regifted? I don't know. It just seems really inconvenient. But see, that's the way we are too. We, we, when everything's going good and we, we know what we want, we know what our desires are, Jesus seems really inconvenient. I don't, Jesus, you're kind, of, you're kind of 
harsh in my mellow here. Just set aside for a second. I don't, I, I don't need you right now. When, I, when things kind of break down and when I, when I reach that end and I learn more about me and I'm on my journey, I'll, then I'll come see, seek you out. We think we have, to have it all together, and, and when we do, we don't need Jesus. And Jesus says, you don't have it all together. You need me right now. Yeah, it's probably inconvenient. But you and I have to humble ourselves before God and know that our heart is the problem. Our heart is the problem. And, and humbling ourselves is not easy. We have to, to empty ourselves. You know, this progression in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 where it, it talks about being poor in spirit and mourning over your sin and, and being meek and empty. We talk about it all the time. This is the picture of repentance. This is the picture of a true changing heart. That we would really grieve over our sin. How, how good you are or not, that you would grieve over your own sin. You would see how separated you are from God and how big of a heart change and heart transplant you need. And that you would go before Him absolutely empty. Not with all these kudos and attaboys and big list of things saying, look how good I am, God. You and I would go before him saying, God, I am nothing. I am absolutely empty and wrecked, and I am hungry and thirsty for you and only what you can offer. Change my heart. Change my heart. And when Zechariah is singing this song, he is saying, God, God changes hearts. And that's why he sings. He knows that God is going to change the heart of people. And Jesus, what he's done is he's rescued us from the hand of our enemies. We, we see that in the text and earlier on in the text as well. He's rescued us from the hand of our enemies. And the greatest enemy we have right now is Satan who's prowling around to devour us. And he wants to invade with fear and with guilt. And Jesus is the one who wants to come in and take, the, take that away. So number three is this. The promise makes the invisible visible. It makes the invisible visible. Now follow along here. We're back in Luke. Let's go back to Luke chapter 1. We're going to read 72 through 75 together, just all of the text to see this. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers. So see this, this song, this praise is an outpouring. He's dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. And he has given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies, to serve him without fear. See, that's a change of heart, serving without fear, in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. See, God, God's promise changes our heart, and when he changes our heart, he makes the invisible visible. What is the invisible he makes visible? Well, we're going to read more about that, but basically it's this, it's the power that Christ has to demolish the strongholds of Satan, sin, and death, and eliminate the fear and the guilt and the shame that would paralyze us. It's the power of Christ in us. Turn with me to Hebrews. We're done in the, done in the Luke text there if you want to pull your finger out of the text. Hebrews chapter 2. Kind of in the middle of the New Testament, just before James. We're going to look at verses 14 through 18 together. I want us to see, in this, in this text in Hebrews, we're going to see how, how we can serve the Lord without fear. We're going to see how, how, we can, how we can have help for holiness, living holy, and how He is our righteousness as He atoned for our sins. So we're going to see how this, this mercy of God, this redemption of Christ, comes and invades and changes our heart, and the invisible begins to happen, and that when the invisible happens, it starts to pour out of us and be visible to the world around. So Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 14 through 18. 
It says this, now, now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared these things, right? He became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that through his death, because that's what he's born to do is die, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil. You see, you see there, there's a freedom there, right? That Christ came to live and then to die so that through his death and then ultimate resurrection, he would destroy the one holding the power of guilt and fear over us. He wanted to, to release us from that. For it is clear, verse 16, that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring, right? The blessing goes to Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God. So here's what he did. So, so he could what? Make, so that he could make an atonement for the sins of the people. That's righteousness. See, when he makes that atonement for sin, when he, when he dies on the cross and sheds his blood, he's saying, what I'm doing is I'm buying your righteousness, and it's not yours, and it was never yours. It's mine, and I'm going to give it to you. See, there's righteousness right there, that we can live in righteousness, that we don't have to, to try to earn our own righteousness anymore. We can't do that. It's his, and he gives it to us. So he's, he's taking care of fear because he's got one of the, rid of the one or destroyed the one who holds the power of fear and death. He makes an atonement for the sins of people. And then for since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, Scripture says, but one who has been tempted in every way and is without sin. But he can sympathize with our weakness. This says he can help. That's that holiness. When we don't know quite how to act or quite what to do, we say, God, let me see your example. Show me. Lead me by your Spirit that I would live holy. I would live in a way that's pleasing to you. I, I want to do that. I want it to be an outward matter to show from the inside out. A, a passage in Colossians 1.27 says this, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, this invisible. Like there's a mystery. What's going on here, right? I want to make known the mystery of this, of this the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is, here it is. Here's the answer. What's this mystery? Christ in you. The hope of glory. That's the mystery. And when Christ changes your heart and when he's really in you, the invisible becomes what? Visible. People can't help but notice. Like, wow, there's some fruit. There's something real going on here. 1 Peter 2, 9-10 says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We're his people. So that... You may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God's, God's called you his own and, and be, made you part of his people, his family, his, his household, so that you and I could proclaim the praises of the one, of the one, Jesus, who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And verse 10 says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If we work backwards in this text, it's similar to what, what Zechariah is saying, that we receive mercy and we become God's people because he brings us out of darkness and into light. And when he does that, he does it in order for us to proclaim, proclaim him in his marvelous light to the world. That's what it is. So and here's, here's what it's not. It's not that, that we would do that, that people would cheer for us. 
Way to go. Look how good you are. We get enough of that, right? And, and that, that kind of leads us to that stubborn place of, I'm good. I mean, people tell me all the time, I'm good. I don't need Jesus. Well, we do need Jesus. Because we have Jesus, now it's, everything changes. We should be more generous, right? Not greedy. More forgiving, not bitter. We should love and not hate. We should serve and give and not take. And we should point people through our actions and our attitudes and our words to the redemption that's offered in Jesus Christ. And, and, and let and hope that our lives would be a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. That, that they would see the invisible and make it, it would become visible to them. That they would get a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. They would get a, gl- a glimpse of the king of kings and lord of lords and know and see that he alone has the power to transform lives. And he alone has the power to transform them. Why do they know that? Because he has transformed us. He's transformed me. And he eliminates guilt and fear. And he says, live now by faith, by trust in the God who will give you his righteousness and will strengthen you to be be holy as he is holy, that people would see Jesus Christ. And that's the promise. Amen. All right, let's stand together and pray. Father, we, oh, we're, we're every, every day amazed by your grace. We're amazed by the promise that you've given us, a promise that is so rich in mercy, because God, we, we deserve so much worse. We thank you that you've pursued us with that promise, and you pursued us with that promise in the person of Jesus Christ, who is God with us. Lord, I pray that you would help wreck our hearts every day. That, God, if we're living by fear and guilt still, that we would exchange that. As you renew our heart and renovate our heart, we'd exchange that for faith and your righteousness. We so desire that. And, God, may our lives be an outpouring. As you work inside of us, may that outflow to the world around, that they would see Jesus, that they would see the hope that we have seen, and they would know Christ as Savior. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.